This year, as you may have seen, we are having our local ministerial and conference ministerial candidates preach to give them experience and to um, allow the church to confirm on them the gifts and graces that we think that they have. This is Nikki Ramage. Nikki came to us as uh, a college student at Westmont, and uh, now she is at Azusa Pacific University, where she received the Presidential Scholarship, which means a full ride for her um, Master's of Divinity. She is bright. She is articulate, right? She is bright. She is articulate. She is a deep thinker, and she loves the Lord with her heart and soul. And so we're excited that you are here to preach for us today. All right, so I'll have to admit, this may actually be the first time that I've made it to the 8 o'clock service. <laughs> but I'm really, I'm happy to be here. So... In middle school, I can comfortably say that I was obsessed with the Los Angeles Lakers. I fell in love with basketball at an early age, and the Lakers were the local team that I committed to. Their game times decided my schedule. During the playoff season, my homework suffered, and I made it my personal goal to beat the boys in their knowledge of each player's stats. Kobe Bryant had an ever-widening place in my heart despite his blighted reputation, and my emotional state catapulted up and down with each glorious victory and each devastating loss. Everything changed for the Lakers, however, in the summer of 2004. They lost in the NBA Finals that they were destined to win. They lost to the quintessential underdog, the Detroit Pistons, and they lost badly. The Lakers dynasty that I had been so devoted to basically collapsed after this 2004 season. Shaq was traded, and Phil Jackson resigned as head coach. This was the end of the Lakers dynasty as I knew it, the bitter end. My middle school self was crushed. The Lakers were done. There was just the overwhelming despair of the present and no knowledge of the future. To my middle school self, this was the end of the world as I knew it. Well, at least for two days. <laughs> there are times in life when the overwhelming despair of the present seems insurmountable, and when the world, as you or I know it, starts to crumble. For me, I remember the weeks following my semester abroad in Israel-Palestine were some of the hardest. I remember sitting in the prayer chapel at my school, just crying out to God because of the horror that I felt at seeing such entrenched violence and hate between two people groups and it was a horror that I couldn't shake for a long time. It sounds extreme, but for a season, I lost hope in the goodness of humanity and did not think reconciliation was truly possible in our world. During this dark time, God's presence was the only thing that sustained me through the pain. 
the world as I had known it, the innocence that I had, weren't there anymore. In the prayer chapel and days following, I was left without my defenses, a faltering hope, and without a sense of control. I was left at the mercy of God and his promises to me and to his people. What about you? Was there ever a time in your life when you were overwhelmed by your pain or lost in despair? When the world as you knew it came crashing down around you? Maybe after the death of a loved one, the betrayal of a friend, or the unwelcome violation of abuse. Maybe in the aftermath of a terminal cancer diagnosis, or the days following a painful breakup, or the weeks following your termination at work, or maybe when racism or terror struck your country, your state, or your world. What do we do when the world as we know it comes crashing down around us? To whom do we go? Where do we turn? Do we trust in the promises that God has made to us? Do we trust in the King that he has sent? Thousands of years ago, the Israelites, specifically the kingdom of Judah, also experienced the utter collapse of the world that they knew. Their dynasty ended, their temple was destroyed, their king was thrown into prison, and their people were taken into exile. God carried out his promised judgment on his people and refused to relent. He handed the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants over to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. 587 BCE marks the brutal end for the people of Jerusalem, the destruction of God's temple, and the dethronement of God's appointed king from the line of David. God's people were now living in a foreign land, had no temple, and were unsure of where their God was and if his promises still held true. The world as the Israelites knew it was over. The passage that we are looking at this morning is situated in the book of Jeremiah, a prophetic book which is filled with graphic images of judgment, God's wrath, and whose central focus is the terrible end for the king, people, and temple of Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah was a prophet who continually foretold Jerusalem's impending doom and exile. He faced strong opposition and prophesied in the context of a hopelessly lost and idolatrous kingdom. The kings which Jeremiah prophesied against were evil idolaters who did not follow God and refused to listen to God's calls for repentance. God's people did not hold up their end of the covenant. They worshipped other gods and oppressed the poor, widows, and foreigners in the land. The book of Jeremiah was compiled in the community of the exiles, thus was formed in the midst of despair, in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, and amidst the raw confusion and pain 
of the people of Israel. While the world as they knew it was collapsing around them, the Israelites must also have wondered, like many of us have, to whom do we go? Where do we turn? Is God still there? And if he is, what does he have to say to us? Do his promises to his people still hold true? Hopefully our passage this morning will give us wisdom for this task. Please open your Bibles to Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Leave this passage open before you as we pray. God, we're so thankful to be here on this first Sunday of Advent. Um, Would you make this text come alive for us? Would we be able to relate to the Israelites? Would we be able to put ourselves in their place? And would they speak hope and new life to us today? Would God, would you speak hope and new life to us today? We trust you, God. We love you. Um, Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. As is evidenced in our reading from the lectionary this morning, in the midst of the haunting, violent, and judgment-centered book of Jeremiah, there are still small glimmers of hope to be found and stunning reminders of Yahweh's faithfulness to his people. Chapter 33 is a part of the scroll of Jeremiah, which scholars have called the Book of Comfort, which spans from chapter 30 to chapter 33. In the Book of Comfort, Israelites dare to hope that God has not forgotten them, that the temple will one day be restored, and that they will indeed dwell in safety again. This book of comfort became words of hope, life, and future salvation for the community in exile. This passage is so striking because it shows God's refusal to give up on his people. Even the people who he has exiled because of their rebellion, he is still imagining and speaking a new future for. In the midst of the chaos and despair of living as exiles, God will not let his people forget that he has the power to restore things as they were. God has the power to take things away and then in his great mercy give them back again. In God's marvelous compassion, he longs to comfort them. He longs to plant seeds of hope for a human king that will care for them as God would. God demonstrates that above all, he is a hopeful God because he sees beyond the present circumstance and is committed to a restored future. 
God's promises bring life to a dying and exiled people. In verse 14, the Lord says he will fulfill the promise he made to the house of Judah and to the house of Israel. What promise? This promise refers to God's everlasting covenant formed with King David in 2 Samuel. God promised to establish the house and kingdom of David forever, promising that there would always be a king from David's line on the throne. And here in our passage, the Lord is saying to kingless people under foreign rule in Babylon that yes, this promise he had made to David's house still stands. There would be another king from David's line someday, and this would always be the case. This was incredible news. Verse 15 continues. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. A righteous branch? What or who is Yahweh referring to here? Branch is actually part of a beautiful metaphor used in the Isaiah tradition to describe the ideal monarchy in the future. The metaphor is rooted in the idea that the people of God are a tree, and they have been chopped down. But from the stump of the tree, a righteous branch will spring forth. In other words, a righteous king. Sometimes things have to die for new life to be able to spring forth. And so the branch refers to a king from David's line who will redeem the corrupt Davidic kings of the past. We also see references to the branch in Zechariah 3.8. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. And then in Zechariah 6.12. Here is a man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out in his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Each time the branch is seen as a king from the house of David, who is a servant of Yahweh and who reigns with justice and righteousness. The pairing of justice and righteousness in verse 15 is important because this pairing is what identified an ideal king in the Israelite tradition. Psalm 72, a royal psalm, describes what an ideal king would have looked like in the Israelite mind. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. The righteous branch, the king, who Yahweh was promising to bring, would do what kings were supposed to do. He would execute justice and righteousness. He would stand in stark contrast to the evil kings which led Israel into idolatry and eventually into exile. What a comfort this must have been for the Israelites. What consolation they must have felt when God reaffirmed his commitment to the house of David and his commitment to the establishment of a true king. The Israelites clung to this hope for the Messiah, for God's faithful human servant, who would rule with justice and righteousness, who would come into the world and deliver God's people. 
when the world came crashing down for the Israelites, and God rightfully judged them for breaking their covenant, God still never left them to die. He did not want them to live in exile forever. God spoke new life, new vision, and vigorous hope to a corroding people. For hundreds of years following the exile, the Israelites would hold onto this hope for the coming Messiah, and it sustained them. This morning, we join the worldwide church of the present and the communion of saints from the past and celebrating the first season in our church year, Advent. Advent means coming and is centered on the coming of Christ over 2,000 years ago into our humble and broken world. It also looks forward to Christ's second coming in glory at the end of time. It is a season marked by longing, expectation, and hope. As the people of God, we anticipate the coming king into our world, just like the people in exile did so long ago. We join our ancient brothers and sisters in their anticipation of the true and righteous king, the Messiah. We cry with them, come righteous branch, come true king of David, come rule with justice and righteousness. This Advent season invites us to relive and re-experience that same fragile and life-giving hope that God's words breathed into the Israelites. Just like the Israelites in exile needed to hear a good word from God, so too does our world desperately need to hear a good word from God. In our world, filled with the cries of four million Syrians who have been forced to flee from their homes, leave their beloved country, and face the danger and violence of a life in transition, of a life based on the whim of world rulers, and a life completely vulnerable to the goodwill or ill will of others. This exiled world needs a good word from God. In our world flooded with the choking pain and numbing shock of terror victims and their families in Mali, Beirut, Paris, Ankara, and cities throughout the world, a world riddled with fear and anxiety that terror could strike them next, their country, their city, their family. This traumatized world needs a good word from God. In our world groaning under the weight of the harsh reality that some lives matter more than others, when systems and laws are set up to elevate one group over another and ensure that it stays that way, when racism is used for security purposes, and people become so afraid that they blindly forsake compassion and justice in the name of security and self-preservation. This oppressive world needs a good word from God. I can assure you, friends, that this good word has already come, and it's coming again. 
It started in the hearts and minds of the Israelites when the prophet Jeremiah first uttered this good word from the mouth of God to the community in exile. And then this good word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then this good word died on a cross and inaugurated a new kingdom and a new age where justice and righteousness would reign. Jesus Christ, the true and righteous King, is the good word for our dying and exiled world. The Israelites generally knew what to expect of the Messiah, that he would be God's human agent in the world, that he would be a king from David's line, and that he would rule with justice and righteousness. But they probably could have never imagined that Yahweh's promises would have been embodied as they are in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Could the Israelites have begun to anticipate that God would send his very self into the world, that God himself would take on human form? Could they have dreamt of a king who touched lepers, taught women, washed feet, ate with sinners, and reinterpreted the Torah in relationship to himself? Could they have ever imagined that the king's greatest show of power was not his military might over the Romans, but his tortured death on the Roman cross, and then his triumphant resurrection? Could they even have dared to believe that God's promises would be open to the Gentiles, and that God's spirit, God's very presence, would be poured out to all the nations of the earth? And yet, do I dare to claim that God not only has a good word for the Israelites, not only a good word for our world, but that he also has a good word even for you, even for me? Can I be that bold in the face of a need for a promise that makes sense on our terms, our need for a promise we can control and manage? and our propensity to trust in the promises of the empire rather than the promises of God. Sometimes it is so much easier to live in cynicism, to never dare to hope. As someone who has tended to lean more towards cynicism, my sister Michelle has challenged me this year to always listen to God's good word for me. She relentlessly reminds me that God is good, God loves you. God is not the author of pain and death. In the words he spoke to us back then, in the words he speaks to us right now, are often kinder and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Sometimes I find it hard to believe, to claim, and to accept the out-of-control goodness of God. But the moments when I dare to hope, when I give up control, when I choose to trust, I realize that there is nothing like life lived with hope and trust in God's promises. God is unthinkably good. He wants the best for us. 
He wants to restore us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to redeem us. He longs for justice and righteousness to take over our lives. And so, um, my prayer is that we um, become a people of hope, that we join together in encouraging one another that the Messiah has come into our world, the true and righteous King has come, um, and we can find hope in that, and we can invite others to join in the hope that we have. Um, Would we be people who give good words to each other? Would we be people who trust in the good word who has come? Amen. And please take a moment of silence um, and allow God to speak a good word to you.